Good afternoon and welcome to the 135th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I speak with epidemiologist Sherelle Barber. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 25th, 2020, there are 32,356,829 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 31,993,442 cases reported yesterday. 6,997,468 of those cases are in the United States. That's up from 6,951,789 reported yesterday, and there are now a total of 203,147 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 202,344 yesterday, another day approaching the 1,000 deaths mark day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. Continuing discussion started yesterday when I talked with Kristen Urquiza. And these are two obituaries that appear on the Marked by COVID website. These are what they call honest obituaries. Isabel Odette Hilton Papa Demetrio. This appeared in the Austin American Statesman July 21st. On July 4th, after battling COVID-19 for just one week, Isabel Odette Hilton Papa Demetrio rejoined her heavenly family and gained her wings. Born in Brownsville, Isabel was a compassionate spirit whose fervor was caring for others, spending nearly 30 years helping others breathe as a respiratory therapist while caring for her two children demonstrating admirable mental drive, focus, and commitment. Her infectious smile, joyful spirit, and strong will made her a ray of light in everyone's life. Often called Obi by friends and family, Isabel is loved and missed by her son, Richard Isaac Elizondo, daughter and son-in-law, Fiona Paulette Tulip, and Charlie Tulip, grandbaby Lua. Siblings, Terry Vasquez and her husband, Josu Vasquez, Vicky Borrego, Robert Hilton and his wife, Louise Era and Xavier Hilton and his wife, Susan Hilton. Along with treasured nieces, nephews, and friends, she's preceded in death by brothers, John, Joe, and Luis Hernandez, brothers-in-law, George Brego, and parents. Isabel was a giant, powerful in her kindness. Like thousands of others marked by COVID, she should still be alive today. Her undeserving death is due to the carelessness of politicians who undervalue healthcare workers through lack of leadership refusal to acknowledge the severity of this crisis and unwillingness to give clear and decisive direction to minimize the risks of coronavirus. Isabel's death was preventable. Her children are channeling their grief and anger into ensuring fewer families endure this nightmare. I'll read one more for today. 
headline is Mary Castro. This appeared in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, September 11. This was written by Rosie Davis, Mary Castro's daughter. She lives in Dallas, Texas. Mary Castro, age 75, passed away in Irving on May 17th after battling COVID-19 for just five days. A dedicated mother and grandmother first and foremost, she also enjoyed her faith, crafts, and bright green thumb. Mary is survived by daughter Rosie Davis, son Abel Herrera, and treasured grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Mary was preceded in death by her daughter Renee Bustamante and her son Ricardo Bustamante. Mary had a heart of gold, but she resided in a state where her leadership felt there were more important things than living, as stated by Texas Lieutenant Governor Patrick. Like thousands of others marked by COVID, she should still be alive today. Her preventable death is due to the most craven, callous failures of the federal and state government. Her beautiful life should have never been collateral damage in their rush to reopen the economy. COVID-19 is claiming a 9-11's worth of U.S. victims every three days, so Mary's daughter is galvanizing her grief into ensuring the country elects government officials who would not put a dollar figure on human life. No one should have to lose their life for the sake of the stock market. I'm going to turn to my discussion for today and just thrilled to have my guest on. Let me introduce her. Dr. Sherelle Barber is assistant professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health. She's a social epidemiologist whose research focuses on the intersection of place, race, and health. Dr. Barber leverages state-of-the-art epidemiologic cohort studies to examine how neighborhood-level structural determinants of health such as concentrated economic disinvestment and racial residential segregation, impact cardiometabolic risk factors and cardiovascular disease onset among blacks in the southern United States and Brazil. Dr. Barber's empirical work and academic commentary has been published in leading academic journals, including the Lancet Infectious Disease, the American Journal of Public Health, and Social Science and Medicine. Her work has been externally funded by the National Institutes of Health, American Heart Association and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, just to name a few of her accomplishments. Dr. Barber received a Doctor of Science degree in Social Epidemiology from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Sherelle Barber, welcome to COVID Calls and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for so, so much for having me, Scott. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and uh, what the pandemic is looking like there today. Yeah, so I'm calling in from Philadelphia, um, still uh, here and have been here for quite some time. Uh, briefly went home to North Carolina at the beginning of the pandemic, but now back in Philly. Um, and the, you know, the pandemic here still seems to be um, relatively stable over the last few weeks. Um, we also, but, you know, as I have um, been researching with scholars around the country, you know, the racial inequities and in the pandemic and the geographic inequities um, and COVID-19 continue to persist. Um, and so I think that's a really important, important and critical point that we have to always continue to keep in, in the forefront that, you know, um, as it settles in and continues, there's so many communities that are gonna be disproportionately impacted and we're continuing to see that. What kind of trends are you seeing in Philadelphia right now that give you some concern or some hope? You know, it looks so. I so I before I got on, I kind of looked at the, the the Department of Public Health website, and it looks again like the you know the trends that seem to be worrying at this moment. I know they've eased some of the 
uh, restrictions um, at the beginning of September. It doesn't seem like there's um, you know much room for alarm in terms of increased risk of uh, of COVID nineteen. Um, and like I said, I, you know looked at the data and it looks like the racial disparities seem to be about the same. So they're not getting worse, which is a good thing. But they're there, and I think that's you know one thing that we'll need to continue to monitor um, as the pandemic continues, both you know in Philadelphia and and around the country. I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read a, just the intro to an article that you published in the Lancet over the summer. I think it provides a really great frame for our conversation today, and I hope everybody will check this piece out. Uh, it's titled Death by Racism. It appeared in the Lancet in August. And you write, the murder of George Floyd suffocated by a police officer who for eight minutes and 46 seconds lodged his knee into Floyd's neck on May 25th. It's just the latest example of a longstanding history of racial terror and police brutality against blacks in the United States and has sparked global outrage. While this act of violence, you write, is horrific in its own right, it's occurrence against the backdrop of a global pandemic that has wreaked havoc in black communities, causing over 30,000 deaths within the span of four months, has forced a collective reckoning with the fact that racism in all of its forms is deadly and has a devastating impact on black lives. It's a very powerful commentary, and it draws together some trends in American life that right now are in front of us on the front page of the newspaper every single day. You draw them together. You show them as a convergence mm -hmm. and speak of them with a history. And I, I would, I'm just eager to learn from you about this. Can you talk more about why you wrote this and the main points you're trying to make with this work? Absolutely. Um, first, I want to um, go back and actually just acknowledge um, the, the appreciation I have that um, you uh, started this conversation with the reading of obituaries, right? Um, because one of the things that I think is really critical as we go through this pandemic is that we um, um, uh, maintain the humanity um, and, and literally that with every lost life, uh, we're all losing a piece of ourselves, right? Um, and so I, I just appreciate that. Um, and that connects to one of the reasons that myself, but so many other colleagues in this moment have been calling for and juxtaposing kind of the deaths due to COVID-19, for example, among Blacks and other marginalized racial groups with the kind of violent death and murder really that we saw with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, whose case um, has just been devastating for so many of us because there was no justice brought in that case. But you know, juxtaposing those because we recognize them as being rooted in the same system of racism and white supremacy that is forms the very foundation of this country, right? And so any understanding both of the ways in which police brutality uh, take the lives of Blacks um, at, a, at such a disproportionate rate um, and the ways in which our society has been structured such that uh, COVID-19 is disproportionately taking the lives of Blacks, as well as Latinos and Indigenous folks, but Blacks in particular. Um, you can't understanding, understand that, understand that disproportionate impact without understanding uh, the legacy of, of slavery, which literally was about the extraction of West and Central Africans from another continent to the United States or to America at the time um, for the purposes of forced labor, 
right? And the ways in which uh, that, um, the, the reasons we could enslave individuals, um, you know, Blacks in particular, was because we had this, these ideologies of white supremacy that subjugated this, them to this kind of inferiority, right, in this country. And then that institution of slavery, although it ended in 1865, really didn't end in so many ways, but it just changed forms. And so what you get after the institution of slavery was, you know, was over is the morphing of that racism into the very institutions and the structures of the society to basically maintain, you know, the subjugated um, uh, social status of blacks in this country and other marginalized racial groups. And that shows up in so many ways. Um, it showed up in the ways in which uh, during the, in, you know, I'm from the South, so the Jim Crow South, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, used vi uh, violence and terror um, to continue segregation and maintain segregation in so many ways. Uh, used violence and terror in order to intimidate um, Blacks who wanted to participate in democracy through the vote. Um, and how that then, you know, um, found its way into urban settings and, and, and racial residential segregation, again, based on, you know, structural racism and this idea that Blacks were inferior and therefore, you know, whole neighborhoods were disinvested in for so many decades, right? Um, the fact that policing was, you know, has its roots in slave patrols, you know, all of those threads which then a lot of us are saying there are these interlocking systems, right? And structures that really um, find their way in uh, so many of our, our, our institutions, healthcare, education, uh, housing, uh, the carceral state, all of those institutions to then exact the kind of um, disadvantages, if you will, uh, for black folks that then manifest as these dis differences in um, the likelihood of surviving in this country, right? That, that I what I just said is basically kind of social epidemiology 101, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that social and structural factors are so much more important and palpable when it comes to death and disease and that we have to understand those factors if we're really going to um, both, um, um, if we're really going to address these issues, right? And so, um, so yeah, so they're connected uh, because again, they're rooted in the same system of racism uh, that has been a part of this country for since its inception. You gave an interview uh, to Smithsonian Magazine over the summer, which I recommend people check out and I put it up on, on Twitter. And you, you said in that interview um, that any conversation about racial inequities has to start with a conversation about slavery. And true to your word, that's exactly where we've started mm -hmm. today. There's a challenge with that, I mm -hmm. think, which is just that the way we've divided up expertise, even mm -hmm. for people of progressive values and goodwill, and even among, I think, civil rights activists, we've mm -hmm. divided up the labor mm -hmm. such that the temporal frame mm -hmm. doesn't mm -hmm. usually go mm -hmm. back that far. That's left right. to historians who work on the 17th and 18th century, and we hope they right. do their part. And right. public health right. has often been for lack of a better word, sort of segregated into its own right. space with these discussions. Yeah. It yeah. feels like there's a lot of work to do to bring slavery into the discussion, isn't there? Um, there is, and there. then I'll say that, you know, there have been epidemiologists, many of whom I look up to, who've been saying these kinds of things for, you know, over 20 years. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite sheroes is what I'll, as I call her, is Dr. Kamar Jones, in the 1990s, and she's the she one. She's an epidemiologist. She's a physician. She's also the former 
um, president, one of the former presidents of the American Public Health Association. She wrote in, I can't remember the year it was published, but she worked, wrote something called Racism and the Gardener's Tale, which is a very simple allegory, but brilliantly um, displays the ways in which uh, institutional racism, interpersonal racism, and personally media, mediated racism operates to influence health. That was written, you know, um, um, uh, many years ago, and people have been calling for those kinds of connections, um, you know, um, between thinking about how racism is kind of this initial trauma, right, that then produces these structures and institutions that then get embedded, you know, physiologically and, bi and biologically in public health or in social epi. We, you know, I refer to something called embodiment, right? And so, literally, how we embody kind of the social, the political, the economic conditions in which we live, and then that plays out and shows up in different health outcomes. So, you know, although it's receiving a lot of attention, for example, we're seeing calls for calling racism a public health crisis. You know, folks have been studying this for many, many years, recognizing the connections, right? In that same article, I also hearken back to Du Bois at the turn of the 20th century, right, in the Philadelphia Negro, where, again, he was talking about Blacks in Philadelphia, the, the, the poor economic and social conditions they were, were living in, and that they were literally segregated. I don't think he used that term, but that in certain neighborhoods, right, there were you, you found Blacks and they had higher rates of, you know, the, the, the infectious diseases of that day, right? And so this isn't a new line of inquiry. I think every generation kind of takes it up um, and adds some, you know, some nuance to it, especially given the contemporary time, but the contemporary times in which we live. But I do think um, that there's always been this acknowledgement that if you, any understanding of Blacks um, whether with regard to health and otherwise has to start with a an acknowledgement of the detriments caused by enslavement mm -hmm. and the ways in which our society, because it's still been on white supremacy, um, may have done away with that institution, but it formed other institutions mm -hmm. to maintain kind of the status quo. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. And I really appreciate you mentioning W.E.B. Du Bois. And as a person who teaches a course on the history of Philadelphia for many years, mm. reaching Du Bois in the class is the high point, one of the high points in the class. And I, and I will say that, and we go down to South Philly and we walk those streets and we go to the Mother mm. Bethel Church mm -hmm. and we go inside and we see the museum inside the Mother and try to stitch that sort of social geography together for students. Mm -hmm. Um, who quite often they're very familiar with South Street, but they think of South Street as a place to go drink beer or whatever, and they're not aware exactly. of exactly. the history and the convergence, as you describe it, of what we would now call public health and what we would now mm -hmm. call social science. Mm -hmm. He was a sociologist, but I don't think he cared much about differentiating. He was just making new no. methods to understand racial violence, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he was he was doing so much. So interesting that you say you include Du Bois in your course. I teach a course on urban inequality and health that just launched last year, and it's an on, online course. And he is one of the first uh, um, sets of reading or, or chapters from his book are some of the first sets of readings that I have our, our students um, engage in because I think uh, trained in sociology, first PhD to graduate from Harvard. Um, but he had he had a goal of trying to understand what, it, you know, the you know, the black folks in, in the United States, uh, particularly post uh, slavery. 
and just was a phenomenal intellectual that brought so much depth um, and so many converging methodologies, right? Uh, so you, you know, uh, and drew maps, you know, one of the things that I'm so fascinated by is the way that he hand, you know, drew maps of Philadelphia to kind of outline kind of different areas and, and different risk, you know, in terms of disease. And then those mortality tables that he includes, I think are just fascinating yeah. because for, for social epidemiologists who have studied neighborhoods and health, I, I go back to that text um, as really a starting point in the United States where we juxtapose where people live to mortality rates um, in a way that had not been done in the United States prior to that time. And, you know, it really, he really, in my mind, although he was a sociologist, is like, you know, almost the godfather of social epidemiology because he was combining so many uh, different interdisciplinary um threads, right, uh, to help explain, you know, what was happening among Blacks and particularly with their health. And I think that's necessary, actually, right? Mm -hmm. So in public health, we can sometimes be very narrow um, in our thinking about why disease, there are these deep inequities in, in disease and in life expectancy and mortality and morbidity. Um, but one of the things that many of my myself and my colleagues do, we say we have to take an interdisciplinary approach. It's necessary to draw on the social sciences in order to understand what's happening, because the way you frame an issue is inextricable to how you solve it, as Dr. Mary Bassett often says. And right. And so, for example, early on in the pandemic, you know, blacks were being blamed for having higher death rates. Um, compared to whites. And many were saying, well, oh, it's because of the higher rates of chronic disease, like obesity, diabetes, which are all diseases I studied. But again, they were taking those diseases even out of context, not understanding the ways in which mm. our, our society is structured through racism to then perpetuate these chronic diseases in our communities, right? So then if you then blame Blacks for that, you know, the, the, the higher death rates or the higher rates, then you miss all of the structures that produce these higher rates and higher deaths and also miss an opportunity for action. Um, one of the biggest missed opportunities, I think, early on was the fact that we failed and are still failing our essential workers, right? The low-wage essential workers who are disproportionately Black and brown who were being forced to work when everyone was able to, you know, others were for, able to stay home without proper personal protective equipment, without things like paid sick leave, without things like um, hazard pay, right? And so they had to choose, do I keep my job, mm -hmm. right? My income, my source of sustenance, or do I um, you know, try to um, uh, uh, prevent myself from getting sick in this moment, right? So there, and we were giving workers you know, that, um, uh, that decision when it wasn't unfair, and there could have been policies that were put in place early on to make sure they had everything they need to be protected, right? So then if you, if you and again, like I said, Blacks, Latinos, and other marginalized racial groups overrepresented in those service, you know, essential jobs. And so therefore that can help explain some of the racial inequities that we saw emerging, particularly, um, you know, uh, among Blacks and other, other groups. And then juxtapose that or then add on to that racial residential segregation and, and the other, you know, housing conditions, et cetera. And you get this vicious cycle that would explain, in, in my view and so many others view, you know, this disproportionate impact that we're seeing very early on that continues to this day. Right. So 
again, this thinking about bringing the social sciences is not just an intellectual exercise. It actually has implications for preventing death, preventing suffering in these communities. The, again, I mean, drawing that connection across that, that time. So now we're doing a shorter time span, let's just say mm-hmm. 1890s to now. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, what Du Bois was doing, which I'm continually impressed by, is trying to deconstruct um, deeply held societal notions that race was a real thing and absolutely predicted right. how people will absolutely. live and not just how they will succeed mm-hmm. in, in a society that many Americans in the 1890s, certainly in Philadelphia, understood the color line existed. Right, right. They did everything right, they right. could to perpetuate it. Most people right. did. But well beyond that to where he points out that preconceived notions just about intellect mm-hmm. or about strength or about mm-hmm. you know hell to mm-hmm. place those in social context and right absolutely it is profound and the minute you see it that way you mm-hmm. can't unsee it you can't unthink it absolutely. But with, so then i want to ask you i mean as covid 19 is beginning to unfold in the united states and particularly in the northeast in big cities mm-hmm. in new york newark Baltimore, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, and then in Detroit, and those same tropes are coming out. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as mainstream as they were in the 1890s, but they're mm-hmm. still there, Absolutely. blaming people for their own sort of failures of health. Right. right. Or saying, right. you know, this is what we expect to happen in these inner city neighborhoods right. and that sort of right. thing. Were you surprised to hear that language come back? Or maybe that's just something you deal with in your research every day? I wasn't surprised at all, you know, because again, it is a mainstream narrative, but but I think there are more counter narratives, which is really exciting to see um, that more folks, there's a, a larger chorus of folks that are pointing to these structural factors. Um, but I was not surprised that that would be one of the first arguments that were, was made, right? And so one of the things um, that's nice about being a scholar who tries to connect with others across the country who are dealing with these same issues is that before we even began to see the data emerge, right? So we did, you know, having the racial data show that these, you know, inequities existed back in March, actually around March 19th, we came together and we decided to write um, a piece called Racism in the, uh, in the Time of COVID-19. And again, we started writing this prior to Uh, the pandemic or the racial inequities emerging in the data. And as then we were finished with that, just as those inequities began to be reported in the news. And we were, the reason we wrote that is because we knew that the first kind of target or talking point that would be made would be this kind of victim blaming talking point, right? right? And so we wanted to have a ready, you know, a counter argument to that, in a way to explain the inequities um, that was going to go well beyond individuals to, to talk about all the structures that would produce and continue to reproduce these inequities in the pandemic. So not surprised, but we came ready with the counter argument grounded in theory, grounded in, um, um, we, uh, so we grounded in critical race theory. Um, a colleague of mine has been doing some amazing work on system science and thinking about all the systems and structures and how they would be operating. Because again, we wanted to come with a rigorous argument to counter what we knew would be the mainstream argument. 
Um, and I and I think that that caught on, you know, on, in so many ways. So as soon as folks started saying, oh, it's because of, you know, individual behavior, it's because of, you know, these pre-existing conditions, you know, there was a cadre of folks that were writing on this to counter that narrative, which I think is really powerful. And perhaps, you know, help to frame earlier on than we may have would have if, if the you know pandemic like this had come 10, 20 years prior. That's an important point to make. I just want to remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Dr. Sherelle Barber, epidemiologist at the Dornside School of Public Health at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And so that sort of those immediate actions of framing that you described that you took and got busy writing and interpreting what was happening for people, that's happening in March. And then the pandemic takes a different turn as we go into May and with the murder of George Floyd, mm. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just speaking a little bit about your own reaction because you're in the middle of nonstop research and then another in one disaster and then another disaster just yeah. sweeps through on top of everything else. Yeah. I think people found it not only horrifying, but also extremely disorienting. Yeah. And yeah. I just wonder if you speak a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, I mean, again, on top of the deaths that we were, again, continuing to see, particularly among Blacks, but other groups. And um, the news of that, um, what I, you know, many have called and I will call a public lynching, right, um, was, um, it was disorienting, it was infuriating, um, it was this gut punch, you know, in the middle of a pandemic that was already, you know, taking the lives, the premature lives of, of so many in our communities. And so that, on top, the grief of that, coupled with the grief and the anger of having to witness, um, which I haven't, I, I still yet have yet to watch the full account of everything, but just to hear about it um, was was a lot to take. Um, and I know that a lot of friends, colleagues, families, they were trying to grapple with um, um, what it all meant, but it was just this reminder of why movements like the Black Lives Matter movement have been necessary, right? Um, especially in the middle of a pandemic alongside the kind of racial terror that we've seen. Uh, so I want to recommend an article actually by a colleague of mine, Dr. Rachel Hardeman, who is at the University of Minnesota. And she and her colleagues wrote a piece that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine called Stolen Breaths. And Scott, you and I were talking about that earlier before the call, you know, this idea of breath. And I think what happened with the police officer lodging his neck, uh, his knee in George Floyd's neck and, and literally... Um, um, George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, right? And juxtaposed to a, a pandemic that literally is taking people's breath away, right? So those two things juxtaposed to one another 
led them to write the, you know, the myriad of ways in which, you know, Blacks have their breath stolen, you know, by these systems of racism, white supremacy and terror um, that, you know, just wreak havoc. And so, um, you know, it it was hard. It was difficult uh, on so many levels. And then add to that the murder of Breonna Taylor, learning about the details of that case, uh, the, you know, the, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery when he was, you know, jogging through a community in Georgia. And then, at, you know, and on top of that, on top of that, on top of that, and knowing that this, again, is not, these are not anomalies. These are not just, you know, and there is data to show that police brutality and, and excessive force against Blacks is um, much higher. Uh, there's data to, sh- you know, show that and document that. And so, again, it becomes just another form. That's why I said this in that article of racism, another way that racism is deadly, another way that racism kills. Um, And so it was hard. It was very difficult and has still been very difficult to process, you know, all of the different kinds of deaths that have been happening in this period. Once again, just to underline one of the key points you're making, which I think to me is just incredibly important we take in as a nation it because we have a tendency to take disasters and and pull them apart hurricane katrina happened it was hurricane okay maybe there were some levees that flooded if you get people beyond that to talk about um discriminatory housing practices in lower ninth ward you've you've made a huge leap Mm -hmm. to draw those together into one frame Mm -hmm. for people and -hmm. what you've been talking about here the violence, and like you, I haven't watched it, but the violence, um, which is out there for anybody to mm-hmm. see what happened to George Floyd, is so devastating, and everything that followed from it has been so mm-hmm. devastating that I, I worry that it's been that people have said, that's enough for me. I, I don't mm-hmm. need to also connect that to this broader mm-hmm. violence. But if you look at the man's life, Mm-hmm. You look at where he came from in Houston, in the bricks, where he grew up, mm-hmm. and the struggles he had in getting in school and, and work, and then mm-hmm. the fact that he had COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. We've got. To, I just. I feel like we have to make those connections, but I guess I'm. I'm struggling still with the the overwhelming task of how you break through, right in this moment through all of the news and all of the clutter right. and. And I think you're giving us a method of how to do that, which is like, just keep making the point, but. Yeah, no, absolutely. And see, and here's the thing, you know, you know, you make a good point about, again, you know, kind of making these jumps, but um, black folks have been making those jumps. We don't have to make the jump. It's our reality, right? So we have no, like, so here's what I think this, you know, um, you know, a lot of us are calling this a reckoning. Right. And 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 unless and and if in a pandemic that has exposed so many of our inequities um, and and with the kinds of violence that we've had to bear witness to as a nation and these things being juxtaposed to one another, if this moment doesn't force us to do the kind of collective truth telling about this nation that's necessary then we'll really never heal the wounds caused by COVID or any other, you know, parts of, you know, what's really doing us harm, right? 
And so for many of us, we're like, we don't have a choice. We can't, there is no way we can just go back to normal because what this pandemic, what those 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 killings have um, really exposed and shed light on and, and brought into sharp focus is that we were sick way prior to pan- this pandemic. And unless we are ready as a collective to heal, you know, it's gonna be even worse moving forward, right? And so, you know, we don't have a choice but to raise these issues and to connect these dots and to to force the conversation in this moment um, because it is hard. It is hard to watch these deaths. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's heartbreaking to continue to watch and to continue to have to quote unquote bear witness to this kind of destruction, knowing that a lot of it is caused by the very the social structure, the structures that exist in this country. It's been difficult. As a social epidemiologist, I say one of my job descriptions is to count death. Right. We, we count mortality. We count morbidity. You know, we, we were able to predict who's going to live or who's going to die based on, you know, things. I'm kind of tired <laughs> of being able to predict the level of suffering that, you know, so many in this country have to endure. Um, it's it's tiring. And, you know, if we're not going to change now, I don't know when we will. Um, one other piece, you know, that I want to add to this conversation, because especially because of this week is what we know about what happened with Breonna Taylor right. and her her you know, murder occurred in March, uh, March of this year, just as the pandemic was getting you know, underway. But she was an essential worker who provided services and saved lives. And then she had her life taken and stolen from her uh, while she was sleeping. And the reason, and I, in, in some of my lectures in the past few weeks, what I've juxtaposed about Breonna Taylor's murder that's so, so heartbreaking is that she really was a casualty of war. The war on drugs that we've waged against Black communities, you know, um, you know uh, since the 19, late 1980s into the 90s. And, that's, and, and because of, of, of drugs and other things, and then you juxtapose that to uh, the opioid crisis, right, which we've called a, po- a public health crisis and not something that is criminalized, right? So we demonize and criminalize whole communities, uh, literally militarize the police. And then, you know, that gets, you know, that um, has wreaked havoc in Black communities and really kind of extracted from Black communities the kinds of um, economic resources, human resources, et cetera, that then create the vicious cycle of creating this disinvestment in Black communities that leads to poor health outcomes, right? So I've been juxtaposing. That's why you've seen these calls for defunding the police, because we literally invest in death in this country, but not in life. Right. And so how we spend our dollars speaks volumes about who which communities we value and what you know, what we're seeing again, especially with her tragic murder and the lack of justice, you know, as a result of it is that, again, we still continue to devalue black lives, particularly and especially black women's lives. And so, again, there's another example of these connections between these interlocking systems that, again, we have to grapple with if we're actually going to move the needle forward and have some progress in this nation. I, I, I don't know how much solace this is, but I did, I will point out one thing I thought this week showed me that the argument you're making here today so well is getting through. 
And that is that the President of the United States issued an executive order in which he's trying to silence you. He wants to prohibit the teaching of the history, basically everything that we've been talking about these 40 minutes. Absolutely. If the executive order were to be successful, you and I could not receive any federal funding uh, to have this discussion. And of course, there's a chilling effect that goes well beyond that if we talk about critical right. race theory or if we invite students into this conversation. Right. That to me is means that you're not only on the right track and you don't need me to tell you that, but that you're getting through. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's a badge of honor when the president wants to shut your ideas down, especially the this this particular one um, who uh, just has wreaked havoc in you know on democracy in this nation. And so again, you know, it is um, you know, I, I, yeah, it's a badge of honor. Um, and me, myself and many colleagues, you know, definitely know we're on the right track, and we're going to continue to speak truth to power because that's what we have to do. You're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Dr. Sherelle Barber. Um, Let's take a breath for a second. Let me ask you how you got here. Just tell us, because <laughs> I mean, so impressed with the work and with your ability to, to take com very complicated epidemiological concepts and bring them into a frame that uh, can be applied in the now. Um, so t walk us through a little bit. How is, what's the Sherelle Barber origin story in getting into oh, this Oh, wow. Work? It's a winding path for one. Um, Ah, where do I start? Oh, I'll start in um, where I'm born. Uh, black woman born and raised in the South. I uh, grew up in a, a family that is oriented towards social justice, um, do, does work in, in terms of social justice. Um, and really, I grew up seeing my life, the work I do, whatever profession I choose is one that was supposed to be one that not is in, not necessarily in service to others, but really challenging the status quo. So I was raised by, um, you know, parents who said, you know, use your gifts, you know, for the causes of justice. And and so my I've chosen public health as kind of my garden. I used to say battleground, but that's it. I don't, I, you know, I'm tired, tired of fighting a little bit, but garden really because you can plant seeds. And actually, because public health uh, for me became a you know something where I saw you could actually produce action that had a, a widespread effect. So early on when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a physician. And then I learned I was not too fond of blood. So I, I don't think that was going to be a good thing. And, and so in my sophomore year of college, uh, got accepted to a program at Harvard um, that um, was all about um, public health, which I had no, nothing, I had heard nothing about. And um Read a read a, a scientific article too that actually kind of really got me thinking about um, public health and the importance of thinking about these social and structural factors. The first was that by um, a researcher epidemiologist by the name of Dr. Sherman James, who I actually just was on a call with uh, for another meeting. But Dr. Sherman James came up with this hypothesis back in the 1980s called the John Henryism hypothesis talking about how we could understand, perhaps understand the higher rates of hypertension and particularly stroke among Blacks because they've had to literally put forth, forth this high effort coping in the face of structural racism, just to put it very simply. And for me, and his work had been rooted in the South among folks who were working class Blacks and you know, the rural South. And I was like, this makes so much sense 
for all of the inequities that I've seen in terms of stroke, in terms of hypertension and diabetes in my communities. Again, not a personal behavior story, but one that really took into consideration the social context and the political context, particularly of folks in the South. And then the second article that I read was one called The Negro Health Problem, written in 1914. But this one was written by a white physician who said a couple of things that were very disturbing. One, that slavery had actually been good for the health of Black folks. Uh, that because of slavery, they had discipline and, you know, they had, you know, good places to live and all of those things. And um, they, it also um, said it was, you know, again, blaming Blacks for the poor conditions that they found themselves in and their poor health outcomes. And I got livid. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how do you ignore the institution of slavery? How do you ignore Jim Crow? How do you ignore racial terror and violence? And the fact that this had been published in the American Journal of Public Health was like, this is this is how people think. And I want to be the counter narrative to that. So as a junior in college, set out to, you know, understand how to be a counter narrative of how to bring all of these contextual factors together. Um, fast, fast forward to grad school, did work in local communities where, again, um, the other side of the tracks was where you have, you know, not unemployment, high unemployment, worse education, you know, all these conditions that are bad for health. And, and and local activists in those communities weren't necessarily talking about health, but they were talking about all these other issues. And again, they were linked to the health outcomes that we saw in those communities. And so I have now you know, gone from Eastern North Carolina to Jackson, Mississippi and Mobile, Alabama, and even to Brazil uh, to really explore how one, residential environments influence health, but how that is structured by a system of racism that marginalizes and pushes certain communities uh, to be the way they are, right? And so that's, you know, my journey really is a journey that has always wanted to understand context. And then not only have I only wanted to understand it from an empirical standpoint using epidemiologic methods, but I've gone to every community that I've studied, I've been to, and I've, 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 I've observed and I've learned from the folks who are most directly impacted by these issues. And that propels me and continues to fuel the passion and the fire because not only do they talk about the pain that they experience in those, in those communities, but the, uh, the, more, the more powerful thing is that they talk about how they've been struggling and wield power in face of these you know, stark injustices, right? And so, I've, you know, seen, you know, learned from activists and folks from the civil rights movement and uh, in, and in, in these different communities and even in Brazil um, had the opportunity to meet a woman um, who was unfortunately later assassinated just two hours after I met her, Marielle Franco. Um, I met her in Brazil just before that happened, but she had used her life tirelessly to talk about these issues of racism, of police brutality, um, and to fight for them as a local politician in the area, right? And so it's those things, this idea that I want to use data to make the invisible visible, right? To, to render the things that we don't choose to see, but render them visible. Um, and also, how do you then mobilize that data connected to the, the folks most directly impacted to really mobilize towards action in a way that can really have a transformative impact um, on these communities? And so that's that's my story. It's a story of 
of wanting to uh, bridge data in action, wanting to bridge data with community, wanting to um, have a real impact um, in these uh, settings because, you know, like I said earlier, I'm just tired of seeing so many deaths, un unnatural, avoidable, um, and unnecessary deaths uh, caused by these systems. Well, thank you for taking the time to to really share that and that depth. And I, and I guess there's a, as you're talking, I'm thinking in these different communities you've worked in, I'm curious, I'm sure there's not just one answer, but what does justice look like? What, how do, I mean, we talk about, you know, we hear a lot about restorative justice. Mm -hmm. We hear about truth and reconciliation. I mean, it goes by mm -hmm. many different names. Seems mm -hmm. like some of the actions are relatively obvious. We should know what's happened to people and we should tell the truth about it. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't seem to be sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, a. I think it, it comes in a lot of, um, comes in a lot of forms. I think one part of justice um, is really owning the harm that has been done um, by policies, right? Mm -hmm. Owning the harm that has been done by people's actions, people in, who have power, their actions, you know, um, and reversing the harms that those policies have done through better policies and through better actions, right? So when you think about something like residential segregation, you can go through the list of racist policies, practices at the local, state, and federal level that produce the segregation that we, it's not by accident, it's by design, right? And the use of police, uh, excuse me, the, the use of policy, but also the use of racial terror to maintain segregated communities and then the kind of disinvestment that has happened over decades, right? And so a lot of times in these communities, they want a, a things that everybody wants, good quality schools, mm -hmm. good quality affordable housing, you know, don't place pollutants in communities like we've done in so many of our communities, the environmental racism that has been seen, don't use us as dumpsters of the rest of society, right? You know, we want clean water, clean air, um, you know, um, safe neighborhoods in order to raise our children. You know, they want everything we all want in order to thrive. And so the question I think that must happen or the, the, the kinds of things that must happen is how do we create policies and solutions that um, invest in these communities that have been neglected for so long, right? And, you know, are there ways to do that that um, bring the community to the table? Um, you know, to, you know, cause they, they have, they've uh, experienced these, you know, the devastating impact of these structures and these systems, but they also can provide the best solutions, you know, for the, those, you know, these issues. And so I think part of it is a recognition of uh, our shared humanity first, um, bringing folks who've been so directly impacted by these issues to the table and coming up with the kinds of policy solutions uh, that would, you know, create the kinds of communities in which they can thrive, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I and I, I see people, you know, doing that and advocating uh, for that. Um, you know, here, even in Philadelphia, I'm inspired by folks at the North Philadelphia Peace Park, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a park in North Philadelphia. It's a, um, 
that's um, you know started by folks in the local community, but they do work around urban gardening and 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 so many other things of reclaiming the land and reclaiming ownership of land and in, in in North Philadelphia um, in a place you know quite frankly that many of us have neglected in this city, right? And so those kinds of things I think are really critical and really crit- important. The other kinds of solutions uh, to the depth of the wounds is. You know, we've got to deal with policing. We've got to deal with the way, you know, the, the calls to defund police um, and 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 in, to, in order to invest in these kinds of life-giving structures, you know, I think it are important. Um, I'm very inspired by, for example, the BREATHE Act that has been put forth by the Movement for Black Lives. They, you know, put some really good thought into the kinds of policy solutions necessary. And I think people need to pay attention to that because they've, literally said this is these are the steps we can take you know to in order to reverse um you know some of the harms uh, that have been done by these structures and then finally you know i'll hearken to work that i've done um with the poor people's campaign which is um, a national movement uh, bringing together working class individuals across racial lines but censoring racism poverty ecological devastation they have a whole platform of policy solutions that would, again, bring the kind of justice uh, that's necessary. Things like living wages, things like, you know, um, health care for all, you know, the kinds of things that should be, um, right. you know, in the society. Right. So there are solutions. And, you know, someone has said it uh, probably better than me. You know, we've created the world in which we uh, we live we and we can create it over or we can recreate it and we can bring to the table a kind of radical imagination uh, that really structures society in a way that's better for all of us. And I think this pandemic um, is showing us that, that we can't do this like this anymore. Right. So. One of the things that's so um, impressive to me as you go through that that list of sort of justice-oriented actions is how practical some of them are and the mm-hmm. many different scales that mm-hmm. you're sort of talking about engaging. Because I feel like a lot of times people feel disconnected from struggles because they don't know what scale they can vote in a presidential election. But that's not... It's not, a, yeah. That's not justice people who've suffered structural racism. Exactly. Exactly. There have to be other scales of engagement. And I know that you've been working on a project about COVID-19 in Philadelphia. Maybe that's one of the ways to engage. (laughs) I wonder, would you be willing to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, so early on in June, uh, as I, I don't know if you mentioned this, but we did, um, the urban health collaborative, which is, I'm a, an affiliate there. Um, we released a data brief on, uh, called, uh, COVID in con, uh, COVID-19 in context and racism, segregation, um, and, um, health inequities in Philadelphia. And so we documented using data, you know, some of the inequities that were emerging, but again, put them in residential context, looking at segregation and how, um, these uh, uh, cumulative incidents was manifesting. Um, as an extension, we got some additional resources to then begin 
the process of, of documenting stories uh, related to the individuals in those communities most directly impacted by COVID-19. So uh, we'll be launching um, a project, and again, it's entitled COVID in Context. Uh, well, we'll, we will bridge uh, narrative um, from, again, individuals most directly impacted with the data uh, that we're continuing to collect on the inequities in um, COVID-19 uh, to really help push forward um, the conversation about, one, why these, co you know, these inequities exist and what some of the possible solutions are coming from folks in the community, right? And so, you know, hoping that this will start a conversation, one, about the primacy of racism and shaping these inequities, but two, what are both the short-term and the long-term solutions that we can put in place to really, you know, begin to deal with some of these structures that have, you know, wreaked havoc, havoc within this uh, pandemic, but have implications far beyond just COVID, right? And so, um, hoping to continue that work throughout the fall and into the new year uh, to really force a conversation here in the city of Philadelphia about what is really needed uh, to move this move this forward. And so, when you've been collecting the narratives, that I mean, that's that's really fascinating work. How do you how do you go about that? Getting these stories? Well, yeah. So that's part of it is we're 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 getting all the protocols up and running for that, but that's going to be, we're working with actually a, a community organization called uh, the village of arts and humanities. Um, Michael O'Brien is one of our partners. Uh, he's a um, director of learning at the village of arts and humanities. Again, you know, we're social epidemiologists. Uh, my colleagues, uh, Irene Hedden, Dr. Lonnie Tab, both at Drexel. Um, but, you know, he has done so much work in his group, that group at the village has really done some powerful narrative work. And so we're mm. partnering together uh, to, to bring the data and the narrative together in this way. And so we're excited to get that protocol running. We just got the funding and we're excited to get that on, you know, get that going and to begin to bring stories uh, connected to COVID in Philadelphia uh, so that we can really push this conversation forward. Because what I recognize is that, you know, people are suffering and it's is not the end of it. And we need to hear from them and hear those stories um, to push us towards the kinds of solutions, um, you know, that are necessary to really, again, mitigate that suffering, eliminate that suffering. My historian brain is like, you're making an archive I mean, yeah. right now, yeah. I and hope so later, as you're doing it later in the year, maybe I can convince you and, and your partners to come back on and talk about and share some of those stories. Because I think, yeah. as you were saying, you were the listening to obituaries is not easy listening, but mm -hmm. it's absolutely essential listening. And I think absolutely. listening to people talk about their pain. Absolutely. With 203,000 people dead, yeah, we can't wait for this to be over to then build some sort of national memorial or or I'm sure there Absolutely. will be many wonderful things that will come from this in terms of memorial practices. But if we wait for this to end, yeah. uh, we will have missed a lot of, I think, possibilities yeah. for healing and solidarity along the way. So I'm absolutely glad to hear about that project. Really. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's been in, you know, I've because of my um, advocacy work with the Poor People's Campaign, I've, I've actually that's kind of where the idea came from because I've literally been on calls with folks and uh, the poor people's campaign itself is, has org, org, um, organizing committees in 45 cities, or excuse me, 45 states. And one of the main organizers for that, a black woman from Alabama passed away um, in mid June. And again, black woman, 
experiencing environmental racism, mm -hmm. you know, poverty and systemic racism all together, really representing what, you know, this is looking like in, in so many of our communities. And so it's, it is those narratives, those stories um, that connect us to our shared humanity, right? I think that's the piece we'll also end with that, you know, um, as much as I, you know, am an epidemiologist and deal with data, you know, being disconnected, um, some, we can sometimes be too disconnected um, because we're just looking at numbers. But again, by bringing this narrative, you know, work into this, uh, into the, in, into so what we're doing, you know, really trying to connect with that shared humanity um, and, you know, the depth of the harm that's being caused in this moment. We're almost up on time and I just want to get one last question in. We get, um, we've talked to high school students on this program and, and college students. I feel like it's completely indisputable that this generation of young people's lives have been um, shaped by disaster. Yeah. And some solace I take from that is that they don't need to be convinced or Many of the things we've been talking about today, they start as first premises. You don't have to convince them about climate change. You don't have to convince them right. about structural racism. They're ready. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for high school students, middle school yeah. students, or young college students who are thinking, I'm ready to get into this work. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll say stay, I'll say stay ready and, and don't feel like you need to wait um, is, is absolutely. I, I think sometimes we, you know, older folks say, oh, you got to wait till you get older. No, absolutely not. You have so much power. So much of the change in this country has happened with young folks, with college age folks. Right. I'm, again, I'm reminded of the, you know, being from the South and like the SNCC movement and the civil rights sure. movement. It was college students. I went to a school that was um, Bennett College, one of two historically black colleges for women that, you know, women there were, you know, involved in the sit-in movement. So, you know, agitate, um, but also organize and and know that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And so it is important that um, you do the work, you organize the work, you try, um, you know, try things, um, but also um, collective work is what's necessary, right? And so joining up with organizations uh, that are, you know, already involved that where you can learn, but also bring some of that youthful energy as well, right? And so connecting with local organizations and local organizers who've been involved in these movements to learn, co-learn together and co-work together towards the, you know, these injustices. But this is, this is our, all of our time, but especially the young folks, like it's, you know, college age folks, high school students, even, you know, this is their time. And I'm inspired, you know, by their mobilization, you know, and by the ways in which they are challenging the status quo and, and teaching us so much in this moment uh, that needs to be done. And so, um, so yeah, so I would just say stay, stay energized, stay connected. Um, and also this is hard work. And so stay centered and grounded, um, you know, um, for all of us in this moment, it's, it's been tough, you know, it's been a lot to process and bear witness to. And so I'm also, um, you know, um, radical self-care is something that I'm also advocating for, um, particularly, you know, because again, this is a marathon and not a sprint. Um, and, and, and because these systems and structures have been in place for so long, it's going to take some time for us to really, you know, transform them in the way that's necessary. And so, you know, those are just pieces of advice, but I'm so excited by the energy, the passion, um, the commitment of, of young folks and know that they will help us to, to continue this work. 
You've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. on Monday. Please join me for my discussion with disaster researcher Elon Kelman. We'll be talking about disasters and diplomacy. And I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Sherelle Barber. Your work is, is urgent and essential and inspiring. And I appreciate you giving me an hour at the very end of what must be one more very busy week. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure, Scott. And again, thank you so much for the invitation and for creating space for these kinds of conversations. Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll see you on Monday, five o'clock.